0: mechanism by which you would give money to the church with the promise of a so-called forgiveness of sins for yourself, and they up the ante that you can even get your dead loved ones out of purgatory. Luther rightly saw the corruption and that the church was abusing her authority to build an earthly kingdom, and this sparked a wildfire of controversy which led to what we know as the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation simply is this. It was a renewal movement, a movement which sought to return to the Scriptures for the life and practice of God's people and His church. Practically speaking, this Reformation resulted in the Bible being translated into the common language of the day. Once the Word of God returned to the churches, spiritual renewal began to spread throughout Europe. This began with Martin Luther in Germany. He even translated the Bible into German. Spread with John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland and France, with John Knox in Scotland, William Tyndale in England. You might not know this, but if you are carrying today an English Standard Version or even a King James Version or the Revised Standard Version, or New Revised Standard Version, you are bearing in your hands the work of William Tyndale. And he was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into the common language of the day. And as Baptists, we are descendants of this heritage. And like our Protestant forefathers, we always need to seek reform by returning to the Word of God. The scriptures. And this call is especially imperative for us in this day and age, is it not? For the climate that we are in, for the state of our country and our role as citizens of it. See, I think there's much confusion out there among professing evangelical Christians about what the mission of the church really is. And specifically, what is our role in cultural engagement? What's our role in the political process? And I think as a result of our confusion, our misaligned mission, we have offered a rather poor testimony to the watching world for what Christianity really is about. In fact, we have projected a mission of Christendom, as I would call it, rather than the mission of Christianity. By that I mean the American church and particularly so-called conservative evangelicals that have largely pursued a path of cultural engagement which has compromised the tenets of the faith in exchange for political power and influence. Pastors become heads of lobbyist groups known as their congregation, leading their churches to champion political causes. You know who the casualties are of these things? It's the mission field. See, the mission field gets turned into the enemy. They're the other people. They're the people who have hijacked our country, we might say. We transform them into the enemy. They become acceptable to hate, to slander, and we even hope that they're eradicated from our midst. Just think of how people talk about Nancy Pelosi or people talk about Barack Obama. It's acceptable to talk ill of them and their followers. And it spreads a venom amongst God's people that it becomes acceptable sins to then speak ill of them. And therefore, we no longer look at them as those who we want to reach with the gospel, those who differ with us. And it's interesting how we elevate our political preferences up to the test of Christianity. But then we lift that up and then we say, we, if you don't meet this, therefore we don't have time for you. This, my friends, is when the mission of the church comes, uh, becomes to establish Christendom. And so over the next three Sundays, I want us to return to the Scriptures. There's a lot of nonsense out there right now. A lot of non-biblical thinking. And I want us to return to the Scriptures seeking to understand our relationship particularly to the government. And this morning is going to be a foundational sermon. We're going to have three sermons on this topic. But this morning is going to be more foundational, helping to establish for us a biblical understanding of the Christian mission. What is it that we're actually to get involved in? What is it that we're actually to get up in a tizzy over? What is it we're actually supposed to die for? What is it that we are supposed to be doing? And I want to argue in particular this morning that we are not seeking to establish Christendom. And by that term, I mean this, the idea that we are to establish a Christian kingdom on earth, that that is our role. And that is a a mindset that has just polluted evangelicals for the last 50 years, that somehow We're going to usher in the kingdom of God if we could just get the right political people in office. And we will cheat, steal, and we'll stab you in the back to do whatever we can to get that to happen. So, to accomplish this task, I want us to go get this to Jesus. When he is addressed by the people of his days who are in a political bind. Seemingly two options that seem untenable. Sound familiar? What does Jesus say? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 22. and We're going to read, or I'm going to read for us, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees. "'went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. "'And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, "'Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, "'and you do not care about anyone's opinion, "'for you are not swayed by appearances. "'Tell us then what you think. "'Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not?' Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away first reason that Christianity is not Christendom is that we are sojourners in a foreign land. We are sojourners in a foreign land, and we need to realize that. Now, this is a difficult concept for us, just by virtue of the fact that we were born here, most of us, right? Most of us did not come here as immigrants. Now, there are some in our congregation who are, And you might actually better uh, uh, empathize with this passage than many of us will. We're born here. This is our land. We're we're not strangers and aliens. This is our native tongue. This is our motherland. This principle here that we're going to see from this passage is not talking about our earthly country, our earthly citizenship. This was a concept that the people of Israel also struggled to comprehend. And this is why they asked Jesus in verse 17, Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And This tax that they're referring to, it was a poll tax. A poll tax is simply a tax levied on every adult without reference to your income or experience. It was a census tax, a flat tax. Every year, you got to pay this. But what made this tax particularly hard to swallow was that it was only levied against the Jews. The Roman Empire had come in, they had defeated the Greeks... And they have taken over Palestine, they had taken over Canaan, they had taken over Israel, and they said, kind of like Don Corleone, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Here's a poll tax, and we'll protect you. Yeah, we know how that goes, right? It was a poll tax, but for the Jew, for the Israelite, it was an ever-present reminder that Israel was under Roman rule. And every time they picked up that coin and it had the inscription of of Caesar's head on it, it was a reminder, this is no longer your land. This is Caesar's. So it was the question of the day. Do we pay this tax, Jesus? Do we give in? So you can see why this was a controversial topic. What made it even more controversial was that Caesar, and even on the inscription of his name around the coin, signified that he was a divine figure. This was blasphemous. You should not have any graven image, and this one has the image of a man, and he claims to be the Son of God. Do we pay this Jesus? In reality, they weren't really concerned about the moral dilemma. They were trying to entrap him. If you say no, good, we'll send the Romans after you. We'll be happy to side with them now to get our political means accomplished. But if you say yes, well then, we'll just tell all the people of Israel you're not really one of us. So what do you do? The situation in this passage impresses upon us that God's people are under foreign rule. That Israel, though in her own land, was still in exile. And this theme is actually picked up throughout the New Testament. You might have noticed it even in the passage that, that, that Pastor Jim read earlier from Hebrews 11. But throughout the New Testament, this theme and this idea that God's people are in exile, that they're strangers, they're, they're sojourners in a foreign land, is applied to the church. It's applied to us. This applies to Oak Park Baptist Church, even if you're homegrown here in Jeffersonville, Indiana. We are strangers in a foreign land. Peter writes this to the Christians in his first epistle. He greets them and he calls them to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. By the way, this is where our student ministry gets its name, the dispersion. We're elect exiles. Exiles dispersed in all the world he goes on in chapter two, eleven. beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul he's not writing to people who are literally sojourners who are without a homeland he's talking about their spiritual condition you are waging war and you're living in foreign territory Territory that does not show allegiance to Jesus Christ. And therefore, you need to be alert and aware and don't get sucked in. James does the same thing. It's the first letter written in the New Testament chronologically. And James greets the churches and he says, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes and the dispersion. He borrows this theme of Israel, of the 12 tribes, the the people of God. He applies it to the church. He says, you are the dispersed, the exiles, those without a motherland right now. And over the last 30, 40, 50 years, many of you have seen this country change, haven't you? The country you love. And we have many veterans here. We're very thankful for the sacrifice that you have made. You've risked your life for this country. And it seems like at an accelerating pace, you're, you're in your land, but it's no longer your land. And what I would offer is that we're going back to Jesus. He's saying, actually, it never was. It was a facade. Yes, it was a great period. Israel, yeah, you had some glory years. But your forefathers were not looking for to go back to their land. They were looking for a better country. They were looking for a heavenly one. A one whose foundations could never be shaken. We look at our country and the values are no longer as we once remembered. Like Israel, you may feel as if this country you love so dearly has been hijacked. It no longer looks or feels like home. Israel was in her physical land, but those who ruled it no longer shared the same values. Everything was different. And so the question was, do we lead a revolt? That's really what's behind this question. It was a question that that people were wrestling with. And so we'll we'll use it to put Jesus in a bind. But it it speaks to a greater debate that was going on politically with with the people of Israel. Do we lead a revolt and get our country back? That's the Pharisees. And you see them in verse 15. Then the Pharisees. That's who they were. They were the political conservatives if you want to put them in our day. What can we do to take back our country? That's their mindset. Or... Do we give in and just join them? That's the Herodians. It's an interesting thing here. They they link arms. They they reach across the aisle, you might call it, because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's real nasty how these things work when your mind is not on the things of God. And so they come and they they pose this question. So, So which is it with both sides right there? And Jesus blows their minds out of the water because they were only thinking one way. It's one or the other. They had a false dichotomy, which meaning that that it must be one or or two extremes, and Jesus says that's not the only option. But before we look to Jesus' response, I want to show you how the writer of Hebrews exhorts the Christians of his day. If you want, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11, that passage that Jim read for us earlier. Hebrews chapter 11, the of Hebrews is exhorting the Christians who feel like they do not have a home anymore. And these are probably Jewish Christians by and large. And they're feeling the pressure of, I've left my heritage to follow Jesus, and this isn't as the way I expected it. I want to go back to the glory days. The writer of Hebrews lists examples after examples of those who live by faith. And I want, you to, I want to pick up here in verse 13 what he reminds them. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They were faithful, and they didn't see these things. And he, he goes on. He says, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. There it is again. You want to liken yourself to Abraham, Abel, Noah. See yourself as an exile and stranger in the land. Verse 15. For if they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, meaning their land of origin, their motherland, They were looking for a homeland, and the writer of Hebrews says if they were looking back to their their motherland of of physical birth, well, they would have gone back to it. They had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God as he has prepared for them a city. Brothers and sisters, as we go through this election cycle, there is a temptation that if we could only get the glory days back, if we could take back our country, then it will all be okay. That's never been the mindset of the people of faith. They've longed for a better country, a heavenly one. And that's where I want to exhort us this morning. Are you longing for a better country, but one that is not on this land, one that's not even earthly at all? It's a heavenly one, a one that God is preparing, which will one day come down from heaven and be united to this earth after this earth has been burned up. However, this doesn't mean then that we forsake our country. So I I want to reiterate that. Does't mean we then forsake it and say, "Well, I'm done with that. Let's just watch her burn. That's not what we're doing. Rather, we are still to be honorable citizens. Let's come back to Jesus' words in, in Matthew 22. "We're to be honorable citizens." And this is what I think Jesus is getting at here in verse 20 and 21. They've asked him this question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, aware of their malice, calls them hi- hypocrites. He says, show me the coin. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Once you notice, Jesus doesn't side with the Pharisees. He doesn't say we lead a revolt, we honor God, and we don't pay the tax. He doesn't do that. We take him to court. He doesn't do that. He says, whose name is on it? And give it to him. But neither does Jesus give blind loyalty either, and we'll see that in a minute. Rather, he just says, give to Caesar what is his. In a real sense, Jesus is recognizing the legitimacy of a pagan government. That's why at the end, they leave marveled. What did we just hear? And this would have been shocking for those who had nationalistic hopes for Israel. See, for Israel, and these, there were some groups that were called zealots. They were convinced that the way to prepare for God's glory to return to Israel was to cast out the filthy Gentiles and reclaim the rule of their own land. That was their mission. And this is most famously illustrated in the Maccabean revolt in the 2nd century B.C., where Judas Maccabeus led a revolt, taking city by city, taking on the Greeks and killing them and reclaiming Israel as their own. It failed, by the way because they're now under Roman Empire. But a similar revolt happened again in 86 by a man named Judas. It wasn't Judas Iscariot. He wasn't born yet. But Jesus is an infant. It's about his time, and this Judas had led a revolt against this very poll tax, a tax that was anti-Semitic. It was, it was subjugating. It was wrong. And he led a revolt against it, which then heightened the Roman government's press and thumb upon the nation of Israel. But get this, he happened to be a Galilean. And guess where Jesus is from? A Galilee. And so they're hearing of this one who calls himself a king, who's getting people together, and they're wondering, Rome, what kind of revolution are we dealing with again? We're here about 25 years later. 20 to 25 years later, and here's another Galilean that we're having to worry about. And Jesus doesn't appeal to the patriotism of Israel to take back their country. Instead, he first calls them to be honorable citizens. Oh, this isn't like we, what we've seen before. Instead, he first calls them to be honorable citizens. And this is exactly what the Lord called Israel to do through the prophet Jeremiah. Because this was prophesied what God's people would go through. And so I want you to go to the Old Testament. If you're struggling where uh, Jeremiah might be, open in the middle Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And particularly, Jeremiah 29. Jesus isn't really telling them anything new. They just haven't listened to the Scriptures. Something He always says to the religious leaders. Have you not read the Scriptures? And yet you're the leaders of Israel. I want to ask some pastors that. Have you not read the Scriptures? Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, the the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city, where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets, insert there, your evangelical leaders, and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. And they are prophesying to you in, the, in my name, and I did not send them, declares the Lord. Notice that theme of exile. The Lord sent the people into exile. But in verses 5 and 6, he says, Get comfy, you're going to be here for a while. Jeremiah knew it as 70 years of exile. Daniel, at the end of that 70 years, is praying and asking the Lord, okay, when's the deliverance going to come? The angel comes to him and says, it's not 70 years, it's 70 times 7. It's going to be a long time. And this theme continues to pick up through the New Testament that God's people are going to be sojourners like Israel once was after they left Egypt, after deliverance, wandering in the wilderness without a home, but trusting God that He was leading them to a better land. But notice in verse 7, it's not just get comfy and seek your own, but seek the welfare of that city. Pay the tax. Why? Because if the city prospers, you'll prosper. Seek its welfare. Be a good citizen. Be a good neighbor. Pray to the Lord on their behalf. He doesn't say slander Nebuchadnezzar. Send a Facebook post gossip about his birth origin or some sleazy newspaper article or blog post by some guy living in his basement about what's going to happen. Stop reproducing that junk. Pray for them. Ask God to bless them. Ask God to give him favor with the people ask God to cause his presidency or her presidency to flourish you ever thought of it that way why because you'll benefit from it and then verse eight don't listen to the false teachers who tell you to look back to the glory days that is why he's telling them there's going to be prophets going to tell you and Jeremiah speaks oh no 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 it's going to be okay God isn't going to abandon the nation. God's in it for the nation. No, no, no. God's in it for His people. God is redeeming a people, not a land. It's not uncommon for me to hear people talk as such, as if these candidates are anointed by God. I've heard this twice this week. Somehow, They are God's deliverer for America. This happens both on the left and the right. So you might think, I'm thinking of that guy. I might be talking about her. In fact, I'm talking about all of them, in case you're wondering. This is how it shows up usually on the left side of things. There's a a, a theology called liberation theology. And liberation theology teaches that those those who are oppressed, often the poor and underrepresented. That they are, uh, it's a theology for them that there's a deliverance to come. It it birthed the social gospel. And false preachers and teachers sometimes promise that this or that candidate, usually a Democratic candidate, will deliver you from your oppression. And they go from church to church to church, not preaching the gospel, but pastors giving their pulpits to these political candidates, deceiving their people that somehow some Savior has come. This happens all over America. The religious right does the same, often twisting the scriptures, applying the promises of Israel to America. You do realize that the promises of the Old Testament do not apply to America. Such as 2 Chronicles, if my people humble themselves and turn, I'll remember them and I will return to their land and blessing will come upon it. You know that one that's like posted all over the place in Family Christian and other bookstores, people's bumper sticker? That doesn't apply to America. You know who that applies to? It applies to the church, the people of God. It applies to you and me. If you humble, I will remember you. You repent and you come to me. I will remember you. And the land that I'm going to restore isn't Palestine. It isn't America. It isn't any other nation here. It is the heavenly kingdom to come. This is what I hear. Often from a religious right. In the primary. You know what I was hearing? Ted Cruz is the prophesied, anointed one to come and deliver us. you laughing because you heard it too. There's some dude who had a prophecy. He's probably on TVN. He's got a fatty check. Well, that prophecy was wrong. Dude bombed. Well, now it's just moved to Donald Trump. Well, God doesn't always use angels. <laughs> it's this idea that somehow America's holy. And somehow God's in it for this land, and and He's going to save it at all costs. Ever consider it just as Israel, God sent judgment to them and banished them that maybe God has given us over? Same thing occurred in Nazi Germany. I've been reading a biography of Adolf Hitler, and it's fascinating just to see just in such a short period of time how the same type of rhetoric is being used today. Where Adolf Hitler deceived many Christians to follow his plan of restoring Germany to power after the devastation of World War I. It was a climate ripe for a message of we can rise again. You know what the the message was? It's that Germany is weak because of these foreigners, the Jews. Many Lutherans bought into a false Christian ideal, Adolf's Christianity, an ideal based on nationalistic promises and resulted in a horrific Holocaust of ethnic cleansing. I don't know, I'm not trying to make a one to one comparison, but there are, it is interesting, the, the, the venom that comes out of so called Christians' mouths, both left and right on some campaign to bring America, whether it's back again or progressing forward. It's all the same garbage. I'll see where this is happening under conservative Christians. It's It's a thing called theonomy. Theo, meaning God, onomy, law. Which is seeking, and this is very popular. You're probably influenced by it. You just don't even realize it. But evangelical leaders and, 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 and people are, are writing. It's actually very popular in the homeschool movement. Theonomy, which is seeking to raise up Christian leaders to infiltrate the, uh, the government. That is the goal. Why? So we can take it over and implement theonomy, God's law. We're going to usher in the kingdom. We're going to create a theocracy. And that's often why they rally around these political candidates, because they're, see- they're seeking to, to get some, use and levy that political power to somehow infiltrate the government. Oak Park, listen to these words of Jesus before Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Vastly different message when we come to the scriptures and what we often hear from the pundits, from the guest preachers who get on the talk shows. Vastly different message. Jesus' answer about paying the poll text demonstrates that his revolution was not a political one. Oh, it was a revolution, though. It was a revolution that was far greater than the land of Israel And for us, it's a far greater revolution than the land of America. It was a revolution led against Satan, sin, and death. And oh, how we have settled for a cheap substitute. We aren't trying to establish Christendom. We're not trying to infiltrate the government. We're honorable citizens in a foreign land, but looking for a better country. And while we're here, we're going to seek the nation's welfare. And you're going to pay the tax. We're going to pay. And we're going to do it without complaining. That's what Jesus would tell us to do. We're going to pray for righteousness. We're going to love our neighbor. I wonder how many arguments might have gotten uh, involved at the the fall festival if we started talking about politics. And more persuaded to get them over to your, your, your ticket than maybe to convert them to Christ. With all this, we need to do it with our heads looking up. We're to be committed to God's kingdom. This is the second half of that answer that Jesus gives. He said to them, verse 21, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What does that mean? You ever thought about that? Well, what does it mean? What does it look like to render to God the things that are God's? Well, to rightly understand this, we need to look at a bigger picture here in this passage where Matthew has placed this account. He's trying to teach us ethics of the kingdom. And you see, beginning in chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, there's a parable of the kingdom. Verses 33 through 44, another parable of the kingdom. Chapter 22, which we actually sang about in one of our songs, Verses 1 through 14, a parable of the kingdom. I don't have time to go through all these, but I want you to notice in verse 41 of chapter 21. This is the parable of the tenants, those who were commissioned by God to work his vineyard. A vineyard he had set up for success, but his tenants were not doing their job. And I want you to see in verse 41 who it is who are the true servants of the vine dresser. Verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. Who are the other ones who will give him the fruits in their seasons? It's a very similar phrase to ren- to give to God, render to God. It's the same word. Give to God the things that are God's. It's kind of an application point from these parables, which he's been speaking in front of these Pharisees, and they realize he's talking about them. Oh, you want to know who are God's true servants? The ones who give to God what is God's. Who are my true kingdom workers. And I want you to see that these are those who seek first the kingdom of God and not their own kingdom. Because look in verse 36 of chapter 21 as he's describing Really, the Pharisees. Talking about how he sent various servants to them, and they kill one after the other. In verse 36, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. But verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, and I want you to notice, what's their motive? What's their motive? This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. You want to know why they killed Jesus? Because they weren't really looking for a king to come and deliver them. They wanted to be king. And I often wonder how many of these so-called preachers who get up and say, Oh, I'm doing the work of the Lord, really just want their kingdom to come. Religious leaders of their day would complain, Oh, the whole world is going after him. And they plotted, they planned. How can we kill him? Because he is going to ruin our political plans. Claimed to want the kingdom of God, but in reality, they wanted their own kingdom and power. So, what does it look like then? That's kind of the negative. What does it look like to be committed to God's kingdom? Happens at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Go back just a little bit. Matthew chapter 5. Apply this to your political engagement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great heaven the beatitudes that's the kingdom ethic For some reason I think much of evangelicalism says let's put the Bible aside and let's just get to business Jesus says Be the, you are the salt of the earth verse 14 you're the light of the world let your light shine before others so that they may see your kingdom ethic your good works your character, your principle. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He goes on, he expounds upon these things. In 21 and, and following, he speaks about those, beware of not just murder, but are you angry toward a brother unjustly? You hate people. Oh, lust and adultery, divorce, Verse thirty-three and through thirty-seven: Are you a man and woman of your word? Do you have integrity? Do you resort to retaliation, or do you embrace the principle of vengeance? His mind says, "The Lord, I will repay." A lot of this doesn't apply when you try to play the game of politics anymore, but we so want to try. As we conclude this morning, I want to leave you with something to ponder. I bet some of you are making judgments. Oh, we know what camp he's in, you don't. You have no idea who I'm voting for. And frankly, I I don't care who you vote for. You probably thought it was about Trump, didn't you? No. This applies to those of you who are in it for Hillary, who think the way to save the country is some third party scheme. All of them. It's the same principles. So I want to give you something to ponder, and, and I think actually give you food for healthy conversation, maybe in your community groups around the table today. I hope I've blown categories out of your mind. This election season, this is my exhortation and plea to us. It has little concern for who you, what you do next Tuesday. I know godly believers who are voting for Clinton. Yeah. Godly people because they cannot embrace the filthy character of Donald Trump. I know people who are going to vote for Donald Trump because they can't imagine electing another person who's going to fight for the murder of innocent babies, and who's under FBI investigation and has been piling up her lies with, well, I don't want to get into speculation, but. Character issue on both sides. I know if people are going to be voting third party, people are going to be writing in, here, here's good news, guess, guess what, good news. Your acceptance before the Lord has nothing to do with who you vote for. There's nothing to do with it. I've had many of you come to me. In fact, I've had one of our interns, I love him to death, he said, am I in trouble if I vote for Trump? I said, no. And I would say said the same thing if they said, I'm, I'm voting for Hillary. No, that's not what this is about. This is what I'm most concerned about, though. Not with who you vote for, but how you vote. There's a subtle difference there. How you exercise your course of influence. I want to ask, are you voting by faith? Are you voting by faith? By that mean, I mean, are you seeking to use your means as a Christian citizen to seek the welfare of this nation without violating a Christian kingdom ethic? Is that the game you're playing? Hey, I'm going to be a good citizen, but I'm not sacrificing my character, my morals, and my relationship to Christ for it. In other words, are you casting a vote in hopes that America regains glory, power, and honor? Is that what your greatest desire is? Or are you casting your vote in faith that God will receive glory, power, and honor? That's how I'm going to vote. Whichever one, and I'll be honest, I have not decided. There's some that don't have a chance, but there, there are others. I have not decided. But this is how I'm wrestling with it. Because I want to be able to answer the question can I stand before God with a clear conscience and said, I sought first the kingdom of God and righteousness and I believe that all these things will be added. Lord, I trusted you. I didn't care what people told me and I said there's only one or two options. I didn't buy into that garbage. I trusted you. Oak Park, I ask that whatever decision you make, you make it as a Christian and not out of a desire for Christendom. Let me pray, and we'll sing one closing song. Lord, I pray for us that we maybe got a glimpse of what it was like for those who heard Jesus give his response, that when they heard it, they marveled. I don't want to marvel at me I want them to see things maybe they have never seen before. Ponder things in a way that they have never pondered. Lord, I don't... We don't want to give our lives to the things seen. We want to give our lives to the things not seen. We want to build up treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy Where a thief cannot break in and steal. We want to be those who seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, trusting that as we obey your commands and we we obey your principles, that you got this. That That the heart of the king, you you turn as you as you guide the rivers. if you are the one who can calm the storm, you do not fear any man or woman. And I pray that we would have light to the world. As the world is banking on broken promises, that we start telling them about a king who will never let them down. Lord, may we pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Let's sing to that tune.